Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Irina Georgescu gives us a lesson in Romanian baking, from delicious snack pies to her favorite ingredient, fermented dairy. It's actually used as an ingredient in a dough. All these elements, they are incredibly delicious. And also, they bring a bit of savoriness to the bakes. So possibly you don't need to use necessarily more salt, because you already have a tangy element in it. That's coming up later in the show. First up, it's Phil Rosenthal, creator of the long-running sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. For the last few years, Phil has eaten all over the world on his Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil. He recently released a cookbook, Somebody Feed Phil the Book, untold stories, behind-the-scenes photos, and favorite recipes. Phil, welcome uh, to Milk Street. Thank you. Nice to be on Milk Street. You've got a voice made for radio. I do. I usually hear I've got the face for radio. <laughs> um, so uh, on a more serious note, um, you had family members who survived the Holocaust, actually. Wow. You got serious right away, Chris. Uh, uh, you know, way to bring the room down. That's, that's that's the kind of guy I am. OK, go ahead. 
Well, you you talked about your grandfather on your mother's side who went to Auschwitz. You said he stayed alive because he invented things that were useful to the Nazis, like lice powder and bug spray. That's right. He was kind of incredible. I never met him, but I am named after him. Hmm. Uh, he survived the worst concentration camps in the world. And even after the war started the restitution program, which the government of Germany has to pay Jews to this day if their businesses were stolen. So that's something good that came out of that. Um, You say now turning to brighter topics. uh, Yes. You said my mother was very funny. And then you write, but there were things that they just didn't understand about American culture. So what were some of the things they didn't understand? Well, they came from Germany. I'm the first person in my family born in America, first generation. Mm. And my mother loved the opera and the fine arts. So they didn't like the popular TV shows. They didn't like the popular music. They didn't like the fast food that I was in love with as a child. They didn't love any of this stuff. And it was a little hard. I remember all the kids were getting these new Stingray bikes for their 10th birthdays. So I asked my parents, could I have a Stingray bike for my 10th birthday? And my mother said, do you know what I got for my 10th birthday? (laughs) And then I had to listen to her tell me about what life was like during the Holocaust, which might be a little much for a 10-year-old who only wants the bike and doesn't want to hear the story. That, that was a long way from a request from a bike, we could say. Right? Yeah. Um, so, okay, let, let's move on to the to food. Somebody feed Phil. So, you know, I've seen a lot of food shows. I've been on a lot of food shows. Um, this show seems to have quite a different premise. Um, there's no competition. No, nobody's yelling and screaming. Uh, I don't like the food competitions. Yeah, I don't. I'm not a big fan. of It's not entertainment to me. I consider food an art form. And the people who make food, artists. I don't believe that you can pit two artists against each other and see who's the better artist. It doesn't make sense to me. I get it. I know why they're popular. It's just not for me. Have you ever had extraordinarily unexpected moments, good or bad, that... uh you know, (laughs) the kind of took you by surprise. So we did a show in Tokyo and I was having a meal with a family and the specialty of their family restaurant was eels. I had eels two or three different ways and I had an interpreter. And so it's a tiny bit stilted that way. And the scene really wasn't clicking that well, just because of this culture clash and, and, and lack of uh, common language. So there was a little break in the action. And just as they're setting up the shot, I say to the dad, so what do you do for fun? And he says that every Wednesday night, the family has champagne night. And I said, what's that? And he said, I collect champagne. And every Wednesday, I break out a bottle of champagne. And we have that. And I say, oh, that's very nice. In my house, we have egg cream night right? <laughs> Just as a little joke. And do you, you know what an egg cream is? Yes, I do. So they did not. And I turned to the crew and I said, oh my God, I wish I could make these people egg creams right now. And they said, Phil, we're not in the jungle. We're in Tokyo. There's a convenience store across the street. And all you need to make an egg cream, which doesn't have egg or cream, is some milk, some chocolate syrup, and some club soda or sparkling water. And so they bring it and I make this family egg creams. And to watch their reactions to this thing as it foams up, right? right? There's this chemical reaction when the seltzer hits the milk, you know, right. it makes a foam like a, like a head on a beer. And to see their faces, I mean, it was so delightful. And it was such a lesson in that moment. You think you have nothing to offer. Right. I'm in Tokyo, which has, you know, thousands of years of history and culture and food. What do they need from me? But don't you know, they didn't know what an egg cream was. And I could show them that. It was the most exciting, funny, delightful scene. Uh, I can't think of another one that tops it, actually. So a few years later, on Somebody Feed Phil, you go to Noma. Obviously, 
one of the most highly rated restaurants in the world. And, you know, I just want to know, what was that like? Yes, we filmed in Copenhagen and the menu, which changes every season, was mold. (laughs) (laughs) They were going to feature mold. They have a fermentation lab and they have experiments with mold. Now, on the surface, that sounds disgusting. But when you realize that that's what blue cheese is, that's what a lot of stuff is. You know, these are artists slash scientists slash brilliant chefs. So I'm in. I'm going to taste it. How was the moldy asparagus that was completely white? It was like there was a white cheese on the asparagus. If, if you didn't use the word mold, you'd say this was a cheese sauce. Um, what did you learn about TV or about entertainment from doing Everybody Loves Raymond? Was, were there things you learned over the course of that that really yes. have affected yes. you now? First, uh, how to tell a story, beginning, middle, end. And the other most important thing was specificity. The more specific you are, it turns out, the more universal your story becomes. Hmm. And that was... Can can you give me an example of that? Yes. In the pilot episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, I needed to demonstrate how crazy Ray's parents were going to be. And so I borrowed from a chapter of my own life where I gave my parents as a gift for a holiday, fruit of the month. The fruit club. of the month. Yeah, I like the story. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave that to them and they reacted as if I had sent them a box of plutonium. Listen, I wanted to talk to you about Deborah's birthday. Oh, my God, talk about birthdays. Your birthday gift to me finally came this morning. And did you know you sent me a box of pears? Yeah, yeah. From a place called Fruit of the Month? That's right, that's right. How are they? Oh, they're very nice pears. (laughs) But there's so many of them. There are over a dozen pears. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with all those pears? I think you're supposed to eat them. Myself? You, you and Dad and Robert. How many pears can Robert eat? Look, I appreciate the thought, Raymond, but please don't ever send us any more food again, okay? Thanks, thanks. Well, another box is coming next month. What? More pears? No. No, it's a different fruit every month. Every month? Yes, yes, that's why they call it Fruit of the Month Club. It's a club? Oh, my God, what am I going to do with all this fruit? Well, most people like it, Ma. You share it. Share it with all your friends. Which friends? I don't know. Lee and Stan. Lee and Stan buy their own fruit. Why did you do this to me? I can't talk this to with fruit in the house. I love that. I love that sentence. I can't talk anymore. There's too much fruit. <laughs> I did. I thought I was demonstrating how crazy Ray's parents were going to be. But what I didn't realize was that your parents are crazy, too. And it may not be about fruit of the month, but your family has the equivalent of that. <laughs> yes, we do. And so I've tried to take all those elements that I learned about from making a sitcom and now they're in Somebody Feed Phil. They're now in the service of everything else I love in life besides show business, which is family, friends, food, travel, and laughs. Phil, it's been, uh, it's really been fun. It's been a great oh, pleasure. Thank and you. thank you for being on the show. For me as well. Thank you, Chris. That was Phil Rosenthal. His new book is called Somebody Feed Phil the Book. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris. Do you want to take the first call? Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Steve Morano. Hi, Steve. Where are you calling from? Cleveland, Ohio. And how can we help you today? I heard this segment on the radio, and I thought, there's somebody who might be able to answer my question. I'm thinking, at least here in the United States, turkey is readily available and competitively priced with other proteins. Do you have any ideas on why it hasn't become an ingredient on the menus of ethnic restaurants here? I mean, I can't recall ever seeing turkey tetrazzini, teriyaki turkey, turkey shawarma, and so on. 
Well, it's interesting you should bring that up. First of all, turkey tetrazzini is a big hit using leftovers after Thanksgiving. So, yeah, turkey tetrazzini has made it. Uh, But you're right about the rest of them. Turkey is consumed actually around the world. It's actually very popular in, in Israel. As a matter of fact, they eat twice as much turkey as we do. Okay. First of all, they have turkey pastrami, but it's the main meat okay. that's used in sh- their version of shawarma. It certainly is in Italy, but you're right. Why isn't it used more in that version, say, for example, here? I don't know. I would think turkey mole would be very nice. I think turkey mole actually well, exists. Yeah, well, Mexico uses a lot of turkey. I mean, yeah. turkey is very common in Mexico. Right. I think what you're saying, though, Steve, just correct it so we know what you're looking for. Is it consumed elsewhere in the world, or why isn't it consumed in ethnic cuisine in the United States? The second one, why don't ethnic restaurants in the United States seem to have it on their menus? Well, it may be something as dumb and simple as the turkey industry is geared towards that one special day. And the demand is just not there. I mean, I think most Americans rarely eat turkey. Except except, in a sandwich. Yeah, well, that's true. Or ground turkey occasionally. (laughs) But I just don't think the supply is there. I know that when we've been testing recipes for turkey, because everybody in our business has to test turkey recipes for Thanksgiving in May, six months before the event, it's hard to find anything but a frozen bird. And so I, right. maybe it's just supply or um, and maybe Americans don't think about eating turkey except one day a year. Maybe it's just not something that sells on the menu. Well, then it's the turkey board. And, you know, if they have enough supply, then they <laughs> need to do something about marketing it and making it more sexy and make it seem like, you know, the it protein. You know, they should hire a marketing guru yeah. to figure out how to get Outside of turkey sandwiches and turkey and Thanksgiving, you're right. That's yeah, true. They need a new marketing director. It's a very good question, though. I think his question is particularly apt because in many cultures, turkey is already present. Right. So why, when it comes here, is it turned into something else? A special occasion thing. Excellent question. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I think the answer is a commercial problem. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for calling. Yes, thanks, Steve. All right. My pleasure. Take thank care. You. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a call anytime. That number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Jody. I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio. I have a question today about silicone spatulas. Okay. I'm an avid gardener. I love to cook. I grow uh, a lot of my own produce and like to preserve and pickle it. I also like to make my own mayonnaise, salad dressings, yogurt. And so I have a menagerie of mason jars in my refrigerator. Okay. And when it gets to the end of the jar, I love to use a silicone spatula to scrape out every little morsel that I can. Yeah. Unfortunately, we adopted a kitten and she has this syndrome that makes her anxious and she likes to chew on silicone and has eaten many spatulas and ended up at the vet many times. Hmm. And so we now are living with no silicone spatulas. You you get absolutely first prize for the most interesting kitchen problem, the cat who eats silicone spatulas. This is called (laughs) real life in the kitchen, right? The stuff we all deal with. Well, I think they used to make spatulas out of rubber at one time instead of silicone. So I think you can still maybe find those. What they're I not use as flexible though, so they don't. Oh no, they're not. <laughs> there are lots of you know small companies who make these gorgeous wooden spatulas and spoons and things, and they would actually get into the bottom of a jar and do a really great job of getting stuff out. Some of them are very thin, and they look like long rectangular scoopers. My husband actually went to World Market and yeah. bought me. A collection of wooden spatulas, yeah. and I actually have them in the car to yeah. return them, but maybe I should get them out and try them because I just looked at them, and same as the rubber, was just like, they're just not going to do it, but I can try. You can get long spoons with very small bowls at the end with long handles. I have one other question. There's no way you okay. can put the silicone spatulas somewhere the cat can't get them. I know that's a stupid question. So the problem is I don't always wash the things right right after I use them and put them in the drawer. No, no, I get it. Reality happens, and she's like a drug addict. Like, if it's out, she is on it. I just like to comment that I know how irritating that is. When you have a problem and someone says, 
we'll just do this. And you go right. like, yeah, but that's not how life works. Exactly. Yeah, you got to find another yeah. solution. I'm wondering if a small offset metal spatula might be a good tool because they're flexible and they have a little bend in them. Joe, do you know what those look like? Yes, and I've been meaning to get one anyway. They're really great. I love them even if you don't use it for this purpose. And then finally, we have this thing in my family that we love. We call it a baby giant knife. I have no idea where that came from, but it's essentially a butter spreader. So it's a flat knife. It's metal that's wider at the end than where it attaches to the handle. And it does an amazing job, and it really gets in the jar nicely, too. Okay, well, I'm so excited because now I have a list of things to try because I just went to, you know, there's no solution to this and have been living in pain. So I'm going to try all of these and try to record all of my responses and at least share them with my family. We'd like to hear back, actually. Share them with us, too. Uh, Okay. That was the most interesting call so far this year, I have to say. I think so. so. I agree. Anyway. Well, it was so fun to talk to you guys. Do report back. We love to know if anything works. So let us know. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Up next, a lesson in Romanian baking with Irina Georgescu. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think 
that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by Romanian food writer and cooking instructor, Irina Georgescu. Her latest book is called Tava, Eastern European Baking from Romania and Beyond. Irina, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I was in Romania in 1971. I actually spent some time in Bucharest, was followed around by the secret police everywhere I went. <laughs> but can we do a little history? Because I didn't realize how complicated it is and the fact there are all sorts of different cultures. So just give us a a short, you know, 60-second <laughs> description of Romania because it has very different sections and very different cultural backgrounds. Yes, of course. It has, as you said, a very uh, diverse uh, background. And if you look at the map, you can imagine the Carpathian Mountains. They just divided the country perhaps into two main sections. And Transylvania, on one part of the mountains was for centuries under the Habsburg Empire, later on the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And if you cross the mountains in the other direction, you had the Ottoman Empire. So mm. I think, in a nutshell, this tells you a lot about what happened in Romania from this historic point of view. So after World War II, Romania was under a communist regime. Then the 70s and 80s, uh, it was a dictatorship. So the question is, you know, did that affect the cooking? What was going on in the kitchens? I think uh, at the beginning, perhaps not. But then later on, you know, the 70s and the 80s were really, really bad. We didn't have access to main staple ingredients. You know, everything was rationed. Right. We had to queue to get our um, weekly rations or, you know, for to have oil and butter and flour. And, you know, we possibly never thought of baking cake, you know, in like with eggs and milk and all of, of these ingredients at the same time, because we didn't have them. And also affected, let's say, um, professional pastry chefs. I mean, in pastry shops, you weren't necessarily able to get very good quality cakes, for instance, because you didn't, they didn't have access to, right. to the staple ingredients. So very often, for instance, instead of putting cocoa powder in batter, you just made a very dark sugar syrup and brushed with that different cakes to kind of get the, the color of cocoa powder in it or something. But you grew up at that time. And so you, you experienced that firsthand. You wrote that you had an uncle in Transylvania who would raise a pig for your family every year. So you always had meat for the winter. So is that what you experienced during that time? Yes, absolutely. And coming back from school, for instance, if I knew that someone was queuing to get something, I was right there in the queue. And then mom would know that she should look for me somewhere around the shops or something to find me queuing for something, whatever that was, meat or butter or something, usually meat. But, you know, so, yes, we had our grand, uh, our uncle in uh, Transylvania used to rear a pig for us. And that pig actually fed us for, you know, used to feed us for six months almost. So let's talk about your latest book, Tava. What does it mean and what is it about? Tava means tray in Romanian. A baking tray where you can put in the oven and bake a cake or a serving tray where you can serve, you know, when we have guests, we bring the confitures out and the jams and the cakes and the, the Turkish coffee and we put them all on a tray. So... In a way, looking at that tray, looking at the bakes on that tray, by looking at that, you can tell the story and the history of the, of the whole country and of the cuisine. And this is what I wanted to do in my book, 
to bring everything in one book, on one tray, basically, everything that we bake in Romania, whether it is a little German or a little Armenian or a little Jewish, uh, all these dishes, even if they are so diverse, they come together in one cuisine. A few ingredient notes, a lot of fermented dairy gets used. You have very unique apples, very different than what we have, Gala, Fiji, in our markets. And you also, walnuts, I guess, are used a lot. Anything else in the ingredient list that's unique to Romania or maybe a little different than an American cook would uh, expect? Well, I think that the fermented dairy is an important element that you mentioned. And it's not only served as a filling or as something next to a certain dish. It's actually used as an ingredient in a dough. So even like sour cream or creme fraiche uh, or a sort of yogurt, uh, kefir, but also clotted cream, which I know is not fermented, but it kind of gives you all these elements that are used in a dough or in a, um, in a cake batter to uh, make a very soft crumb, to make, uh, they are incredibly delicious. And also, they bring a bit of savoriness to the bakes. So possibly you don't need to use necessarily more salt in bakes because you already have a tangy element in it. So I think this is quite interesting in how we bake in Romania because we use this type of fermented dairy quite a lot. Let's talk about pies because you have a very unique way of making pies. You have a, two layers of dough, but one's on the bottom, one's on the top, and they're not enclosed. It's just the top layer and a bottom layer, which sounds like a really interesting idea. It is. It's called placinda. It's an old Latin word for for a pie, flat pies. So you can see from the origin of the word, you can see the origin of the dish, which very often happens in Romania. And this placinta is made pretty much in the same way like it used to be made in ancient times. It's just one layer of dough at the bottom and then any fillings in the middle and another layer on top. And being such an old recipe and so iconic, it's also, it has had improvements or little additions over time. As you can imagine, over centuries, we just added something or made it in a different way. So there are thousands of recipes for a placinta. But the main, the most iconic two placinta are the apple placinta, apple pie, and brinza, placinta cu brinza, a cheese pie, but sweet. So the cheese is sweetened mm. uh, with honey or sugar, but with also with dried fruit, with sultanas, and uh, you bake them, you bake them like that. And they are usually served as a snack, cold. So they don't come with ice cream. They don't come with vanilla sauce. They don't come with anything else. Pies, whether savory or sweet in Romania, they are served cold as a snack. So, so you cook it in a baking pan or casserole and then cut it into squares and serve it that way? Yes, it needs to be rectangular or square baking tin. And you allow it to cool uh, with a towel on top. And when it's cold, you, you cut it and then you put some icing sugar on top, if you like, and you eat it like that. You have a recipe, which I just have to ask about. It's called lifted skirts cheese curd pies. <laughs> Why is that called that title? <laughs> because of the way you fold the, the pies. Um, in a traditional Romanian costume for women, very often you have a sort of apron uh, over the skirt. Right. And that apron is very nicely decorated and sometimes is quite heavy and quite stiff. You can't move in something like that. But it was traditional to wear it. So women used to get uh, one of the corners and tuck the corners under, uh, under their belt just to lift the skirt, basically, mm. to lift the apron so they can get a bit more movement, so they can move more mm. freely a little bit. So because of that, how you fold the corners, we named the pie after the whole thing. So Poilem Brew, this is the name of the pie, uh, folded skirts, folded aprons, comes from this, uh, this way of wearing the apron, basically. So as a baker in the Romanian tradition, are there a couple of things you do 
or Romanians do in the kitchen that we don't do here that you think are interesting, better, something that we should add to repertoire? In other words, if I sat down with your book, are there a couple of recipes in that book that are things you'd say, look, you really need to know how to do this because it'll completely change the way you think about cooking? I think that if you look at the very, very traditional recipes, there is a very interesting way of baking and very quick as well. So you don't have to spend a lot of time doing things. So I think that if you take the book and you want to try the first Romanian recipe, I would go for the apple pie or the, the curd cheese pie. Um, one of my our iconic uh, recipes. But throughout the book, there is also something interesting. I mean, look at the rice pudding I have in there. I serve it with the vanilla sauce. I mean, that is not a usual way to, to serve it. And it's inspired by the way we used to have a certain dish called rice pudding served with apricots like that. So at some point, they look all of them look familiar, and then you look and there is an element that, that is not very familiar to how you would serve a certain dish, like this rice pudding. I think you had a, a rice pudding with a wine sauce too, right? Yes, that one. It's, it yeah. has vanilla as well. So the, the wine sauce, which is chaudot, which is quite along the lines of a sabayon or um, uh. sabalione, you know, in Italian, but we call it wine, wine sauce because obviously it has wine in it, so... So it's rice pudding for grown-ups. Uh, yes. <laughs> but you serve it chilled. I mean, if you serve it chilled, then it's also rice pudding for summer. It doesn't have to be rice pudding only for, for uh, autumn and winter. So. so in the 90s, when the fall of Soviet Russia, did, did things revert back to what they were like when you did have all these ingredients or was sort of a new cuisine evolved over that time in the last 30 years? I think that everyone embraced the new freedom and also the global world, <laughs> the globalized world. And a lot of us went to just buy a panettone rather than making your own cosonac for Christmas, you know what I mean? Mm. And also, you know, having access to all sorts of sweets from all over the world. I think we were keen to experiment and keen to to adapt to the modern times. So later on, perhaps in like 10 years, you know, after that, we kind of realized that we needed to go back to our traditions and go back to our roots and rediscover the villages. And even in those villages, the people there to rediscover their own traditions. You, uh, during the communist regime, they were not able for how many years, can you, more than no, 60 years in total, we were not able to to practice their own artisan skills. You know, the cheesemakers forgot how to make a cheese, the pie makers forgot how to make a pie, and so on. So now we are on a path of, of rediscovery, of looking through perhaps old books or recipe, family recipes and going back to the way we used to bake. And it, it's also a search for identity. So, yes, something's changed after the fall of the communist regime, and also are changing even now because we, uh, we need to go and to retrieve and rediscover everything that we lost in 60 years. Irena, thank you so much. I, I love your book, Tava, and I can't wait to start baking. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Irina Georgescu. Her new book is called Tava, Eastern European Baking from Romania and Beyond. In 1971, I took a train south from Budapest to the town of Sibiu, Romania. With a college friend, we were in search of the burial place of Frank Baron von Frankenstein, who had been executed by Vlad Dracula, otherwise known as Vlad the Impaler, back in the 15th century. This strange and wild rumor, much to my delight, was actually true. We found his crypt in a local church. You know, back then I thought of Romania as Transylvania, the breeding ground for vampires and really bad B-movies from the 60s. But when viewed through the lens of food, Romania tells a very different story. The Romanian kitchen reflects Jewish, Turkish, French, Italian, Saxon, even Hungarian influences, plum pies, Swabian, poppy seed crescents, Linzer tarts, strudels, meringues, and gingerbread. When we travel, churches and other architecture do reflect history, 
But the kitchen is where it comes to life in the present. Who said history has to be a thing of the past? You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Sam Four about this week's recipe, Colombian cheese puffs. Sam, how are you? Doing well, Chris. It's great to talk to you. Uh, nothing like a cheese puff. Oh, um, love a cheese puff. You know, Rumpole of the Bailey, one of my favorite old BBC series. His <laughs> wife, she who must be obeyed according to Horace Rumpole, always brought little cheese puffs, you know, to the the conferences and the little parties they had. And so when we came across these Colombian cheese puffs, it reminded me of something sort of classic, except these are so much better. Uh, <laughs> they're puffy, but they also have a little chew to them. Uh, so what are they made of and how do we do it? Well, you know that a recipe succeeds in the Milk Street kitchens when there's nothing left on the testing table. And this is one of those recipes that disappears real, real quick. And, and part of it is its simplicity. It, it really is. It's three cheeses and our dry ingredients. So we've got low-fat cottage cheese. We've got salty cotilla cheese. And we've got some shredded Oaxacan cheese. And the big thing to remember when making these is that you're going to use these low-fat cheeses because a full-fat cheese would make it go flat. And what we love about the Almohabanas is the chewiness, the texture, the almost like sinful pillowy bite to it. So we got the cheese down, but I assume there's obviously flour. So what kind of flour is used? We used a arepa flour, a masarepa, which is just pre-cooked and fine ground. It doesn't have any, you know, alkalinization like a normal masa harina, or it's not like cornmeal when it's not pre-cooked. It allows it to cook very, very quickly, which lends itself to its lighter sort of airy bite texture. And, and mixed with bread flour, too, of course. And a little bit of tapioca just for the chewiness. So you have bread flour, three kinds of cheese, including cottage cheese, the masarepa. And it's really, a, it's, it's an unusual recipe, but it's great. It's not intimidating because it's a very easy dough to make. It's not something that needs to sit or rise. It doesn't need anything to make it beautiful and delicious. Sam, thank you. A Colombian cheese puff. Three different kinds of cheese, but curiously light, fluffy, a little hint of chew. Really outstanding. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. You can get the recipe for Colombian cheese puffs at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News is on a quest to cut an onion in 20 seconds or less. That's right up after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Jennifer. How can we help you today? Well, I recently listened to one of your podcasts, and you spoke about Julia Child. What a great chef she is, and everybody knows a good cook keeps a tidy kitchen and workspace, and that got my attention. How do you do that? <laughs> First of all, if my wife listens to me answering this, she's going to kill me because she doesn't think I'm an expert on this particular topic. I assume your kitchen is already designed and there's you're working with what you have, right? I am. And yeah. honestly, I have a new nicely designed kitchen. Okay. And my husband still is behind me every split second picking up, scooping up, trying to help me keep tidy. The first thing I would do, I don't know if you have a basement in your house, I would divide your kitchen ingredients and equipment between your kitchen and some other place. A lot of the stuff that I don't use very much goes downstairs. And so that's really helpful if you have the room. I do. Then get all the stuff you don't use, you know, like the bun pan you use twice a year goes downstairs, the waffle iron, all the other stuff. The first thing I do when cooking is to go through the ingredient list, get everything out on a counter, get everything prepped, have prep bowls, look at the recipe, if the onions and the shallots and the something else are going into the recipe at the same time, put them all in the same bowl so you don't have separate bowls for all of them. Measure out the spices, the flour, everything. Get it all prepped. Put all the ingredients away and then clean your kitchen before you start cooking. Everything's measured. Everything's in the right bowls. Do that. And then as you go, as they're like things are in the oven or they're in a skillet or whatever, then finish cleaning up as you go. Don't leave it till the end. Sarah's nodding. No, no, I think that's all very reasonable. Jennifer, I wanted to ask you a few questions, though. When your husband's hovering behind you and <laughs> it's you've been accused of making a horrible mess, tell me what kind of recipe are you making and what happens? I'm often trying a new recipe. I love your new sheet pan recipes, things like that, that, you know, are one pot or one dish. Okay, so one pot meal, there shouldn't be a lot of dishes. So what is the mess on the counter? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get you to think about what that mess is. It's the onion and the peppers and the shallots, the remains. Packages, he definitely throws it away if I've left it there 10 seconds and he's around. Your husband sounds like my father-in-law. He stands behind me as I cook because he likes everything orderly. He has actually thrown out my prep more than once because it was a bowl of onions. Yeah. So gone. Yeah. So yeah. a couple of things. You want to have, first of all, a garbage bowl on the counter. It's a free-for-all. So if you take off the onion skin, if you have the ribs and the seeds from the pepper, it goes right in there. I agree with Chris 100%. Either have all your prepped items in different bowls or what you can do. Let's say you have several different vegetables that are going to go into a dish. Take Mm -hmm. a small-rimmed sheet pan and just line them up. You know, put all the peppers in one place on the sheet pan. Put all the onions another place on the sheet pan. Put the minced Mm -hmm. garlic another place on the sheet pan. That way you don't have three different little prep bowls for them. Two other quick suggestions. I put my cutting board to the left of my sink. 
So instead of using uh-huh. a bowl, I sweep the detritus, the stuff I don't want, right into the sink. <laughs> and so my sink okay. is my yeah. garbage bowl, which is much bigger than the garbage bowl. And then when it gets full of stuff, I'll take it and either throw it out or put it down the disposal. Two, I love Chinese cleavers because they're like dough scrapers that you can clean up a surface with a big cleaver. Instead of having to go get a dough scraper or something else, a cleaver will do that job for you. Right. And in my case, I would use a giant version of bench scraper, which is called a cake lifter. You know what it is? It's just a matter of being conscious about it. Prep, then cook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Preparation is everything. Yeah, It's boring, but it's true. Yeah. It is true. And just what did you say about clean up and then start cooking? That's a great idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, take care. appreciate it. Sure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a little extra help in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Corinna calling from Pipersville, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? So I have a question about baking quick breads. Um, Mm -hmm. In particular, um, when I make pumpkin and banana bread, Every time I make a loaf of one, my bread is cooked through around the edges, but the top middle portion is completely raw. I don't want to keep baking it, <laughs> so I just take it out and then scoop out all the underbaked portion, but that's really sad, so I need to know what I'm doing wrong. Wait a minute. So you take it out and you scoop out the center? <laughs> well, because I know that the sides are cooked, and I don't want to keep baking it and overbake right. the sides. Well, that's one center. solution, I have to say. <laughs> I have two questions. What what temperature are you using in the oven? 350, 375? For the pumpkin bread recipe, it's mm-hmm. 350. And yeah. the banana bread recipe I use is 325. Okay. And what kind of pan? Dark color, light colored? They're like a gold nonstick pan. Let's put pumpkin aside for a second. Pumpkin's more mm-hmm. difficult. But yeah. with the banana bread, I don't quite understand why that's not working. How many bananas? Do you have three, four bananas in there? Three. That's about right. Well, I guess. But I, wait a second, Chris. There's bananas that are huge, and there's bananas that are tiny. Three bananas is no good. You have to have cups of banana puree. The problem is this. She has two different recipes. She has a pumpkin bread recipe and a banana bread recipe. The fact that both of them end up with the same problem, they both end up undercooked. Then the obvious answer is your oven's too hot. I would reduce the oven okay. by at least 25 degrees, probably 50 degrees, because you're overcooking the outside before the inside is done. And if you have two totally different recipes, both with the same problem, it's really got to be oven heat. And the light-colored pan is right, because a darker pan would tend to overcook the outside before the inside's done. Now, Sarah, I will turn this show over to you. I think you need a different recipe. Let's start with the banana bread, because it's silly to say three bananas. You know how they differ. Yeah. I would find one that gives you volume, And as you know, the banana bread's better with a really, really ripe banana. As for the pumpkin, tell me what kind of pumpkin puree do you use? I actually roast and puree and freeze my own pumpkin. Oh. So it calls for a 15-ounce can. I still weigh out my 15 ounces, but probably not really the same. It's going to be much more watery than what you find in a can. Are you just using the big old sugar pumpkins? Most of the time I get the Blue Hubbard pumpkins. Either you could cook down the puree, but that's like a Vesuvius situation where you could be wearing some of it, you know, over a low burner to try to dry it out and reduce some of the water. If there's some way you could figure out how to do that without killing yourself, that would be great. Mm -hmm. It's just not the same density. Guys, there's a rule in life. The simplest answer is usually the best. (laughs) Your your oven's too hot. But, um, you know, I agree. Try a different banana bread recipe. I will. And we will call you back. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. it's great to talk to you. All right, okay, Serena. that sounds great. Thank you. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's check in with our Paris correspondent, Alex Inews. Alex, what's up in Paris this week? All is good in Paris apart from one thing. <laughs> I was cutting onions the other day. And I was looking at my speed, and it feels like I'm stagnating. It feels like I'm not huh. growing anymore. It feels like it feels like I might not be the cook that I advertise on YouTube. <laughs> the problem is, 
I usually take about 30 seconds to turn an onion into chopped pieces. Now you think about all the onions I have to cook for all the recipes that I make. I'm wasting a lot of time by not being faster. I know what's going on. You're entering a midlife crisis and self-doubt is creeping in between your ears. That is scary. You, you see through me like a glass, basically. You got to be careful. This is bad. You got to stop this stuff right now. Anyway, it's too late. I already <laughs> went the journey. So right. I, 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 I try to improve this onion cutting speed. Okay. Well, bad news. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get lower than 25 seconds. Now, I had this lightning. I thought about a book I read recently, uh, written by James Clear, and the book is called Atomic Habits. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I'm not. So it's an amazing book that tells people about the one-person principle, like small changes makes for powerful changes in life. But in there, there is a very specific chapter about the British coach called Dave Brailsford, who, in the past, turned the British bike team from absolute losers into absolute winners hmm. by just doing super, super small changes to their lifestyle, their training. So, so in other words, he got them to chop an onion in 15 seconds, and that's how they won? Not yet, not yet. It goes like this. If you, if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improve it by 1%, right. you will get a significant increase when you put them all together. I thought, that's amazing. Huh. And that is exactly what I'm going to try to apply to cutting an onion faster. So I did what it did with the bikes and the aerodynamic suits and the new tires, but for a cook. So I changed the knife that I use for a sharper one a longer one, a Japanese blade. I was already faster, I was just doing this. Okay. I got rid of some unnecessary move. You know, when, you, when you're cutting an onion, you do a series of horizontal and vertical mm -hmm. cuts, but I feel like when you do the horizontal cut, I don't feel like it's helping so no, much. You know what, you would, that's interesting, because I gave up on the horizontal cut about two years ago, because onions are layered already. Mm-hmm. And it does it, it increases speed tremendously, right? Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's like it, it doesn't make no. no difference for a home cook. So so I got rid of this. Then I, I, I swapped my flimsy cutting board for like a big butcher block, which is not moving anywhere. So there's more stability. Uh, and and then I put an apron on, because when I've got an apron on, it feels like I'm I'm down for business. All this got me faster, but it didn't get me like really, really fast. I couldn't get, for example, below 20 seconds. I feel like I was still hitting a wall. And then I, I remember that story of the British coach. He did the expected, the bikes, the suits, the tires, but he also did the unexpected. I love that story. He said, I'm going to buy each member of that team a memory foam pillow so you guys can sleep better. And if you sleep better, you're going to be faster on bikes. Then he did a benchmark on all the massage gels for recovering faster. He went into some details that may seem stupid, but when you add them all together, these tiny little details made a difference. So I, I thought, okay, I'm game. I'm going to do this. The first move that I did, I went to an optician down the road and I said, can you clean my glasses with your ultrasonic bath? They've got a special bath right. that cleans the glasses like crystal clear. So they did that. And with super clear glasses, I thought I'm going to be faster because I'm going to see things better. Then I uh, borrowed from a friend of mine, a musician, a metronome. And I started practicing the rhythm at which I should be cutting an onion if I want to be below 20 seconds. And another thing that I did, I took that big butcher block that I use for stability and that has been helping me a lot. And then I removed the tiny rubber feet that are located uh, underneath that board. The reason is, when I'm using the blade and I'm cutting onions, you know, like Chinese chef, like pop, 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 pop. I want that blade to bounce back. I don't want the energy to be wasted. So I got rid of these rubber feet. <laughs> then I, I did something that shouldn't be taken lightly, and I would never advise somebody to do this, but I'm, I'm, I'm still a... A chef, so I did this in a very careful way, but I trained with a blindfold on. I had obviously, you know, a glove to protect my hand, so don't worry. So a blindfold, okay, good. The idea was to try and not rely too much 
on my eyes. Right. I need to feel this instead of watch this. I also use an industrial fan that I pointed at my uh, workstation to get rid of the onion fumes right. that were making me cry. I took all this and I was able to go below 20 seconds. My end mm. time was f uh, 19 seconds, 59. And I thought, that's crazy. I shaved off 10 seconds in one day. It just shows that progress, especially in the kitchen, can be tiny, but it's, it's, it still matters. It's still substantial, I feel. But here's the question, Alex. Are you happier in the kitchen? I will never be happy. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. I'm faster, but I'm still not satisfied. Alex, I know uh, from 30 seconds to 19, maybe it's a new world record. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, man. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our television show, and learn about our latest cookbook, Cook What You Have, Make a Meal Out of Almost Anything. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 